0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what-the-fuckers? What-the-fuck, buddies? What-the-fuck, Nicks? What's happening? How's it going? Congratulations, SAG-AFTRA members, me being one of them. Back to work. Time to get back to making the make-believe. Yay, strikes over. Good job. Good job for holding out. Union strong, folks. Union strong. Means something. All right. Today on the show is a guy named Laraji. Yes, Laraji, also known as Edward Larry Gordon. That was his original name, but then he changed it to Laraji. Now, what? who is this guy? Here's what happened. So I got a box set in the mail, okay? And it's called Segway to Infinity. It's a, It's a four LP box set. And I had no idea what it was. And then I talked to Gimme Gimme Dan, and he goes, oh, yeah, that guy, he's like kind of, uh, you know, one of the originators of what became sort of New Age music or meditative music or, or experimental meditative music, ambient music. Well, that's the thing. Ambient music. All right. So I didn't really know who the Raji was, and then I did a little more exploring and it turns out that he is Ambient Three, which was an Eno produced record that I assumed was an Eno record. And it's called Ambient Three Day of Radiance. And it says right on the cover, uh, an album by Laraji. So I've had that record probably for 30 years. I mean, a long time. And I never put it together. I've listened to the record. I kind of lump a lot of those ambience together. I assume they were Brian Eno, or at least a collaboration with Brian Eno. But this is a Laraji record that I've, I've had forever. I had no idea. Now, this guy's got a very interesting life. He went to Howard University to stu- study music composition. He went to New York and he tried to become a stand-up comic. and you know he was a guitar player a bit, and he was going in and out of uh, some combos and playing out doing gigs and then, uh, but he was also this guy who was very savvy about music composition a very smart composer. But here's, uh, apparently what happens is that he, he needed some money. So he goes to pawn his guitar at a guitar shop and through, you'll hear in the interview through some divine intervention or some signs, he, he decided that he needed to, uh, Uh, basically leave with a zither, an auto harp. He modified it, and he started busking in Washington Square Park. He amplified it, and he started creating these improvisational sounds that were totally unique. And he got noticed by Brian Eno, and then he worked with Brian Eno on that record. And now this guy is one of the most prolific New Age musicians ever. So what do you do with New Age music? Now, I don't know what your experience is, but hold on, let me just do some other work here. Some other business. I'm in Denver, Colorado at the Comedy Works South for four shows, November 17th and 18th. The early shows are sold out. But get over there and go uh, get some tickets. Or you can go to wtfpod.com slash tour. Los Angeles. I'm at Dynasty Typewriter on December 1st, 13th, 28th, The Elysian on December 6th, 15th, and 22nd, and Largo on December 12th and January 9th. Then my 2024 tour gets started in San Diego at the Observatory North Park on Saturday, January 27th. San Francisco, I'm at the Castro Theater on Saturday, February 3rd. That's going to be the last show with seats at the Castro Theater. That's all I know. Then I'm in Portland, Maine, at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts, right outside Boston, at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island, at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. And Terrytown, New York, at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Go to wtfpod.com tour for tickets. More dates will be announced soon. So, Laraji, Now, I don't know what your experience is with music or who guided you into the music that you knew and loved getting, uh, you know, when you were back when you were in high school. But I mean, some of you know the story. I knew this guy, Steve LaRue, rest in peace, who worked at the record store next to the bagel place. I worked in high school and he had turned me on to all kinds of weird music. The Residents, primarily, I remember Fred Frith, I remember, and Brian Eno, I remember John Hassel. I remember Eno and Hassel are kind of, uh, you know, they they've worked together as well. but I didn't I didn't really know what it was or understand it, but I, I had a mind for it in the sense that, you know, I, I kind of dug it. I kind of got the idea. It made me understand there was other types of music and things going on out there. but I I just I, I lumped it all together. And then over time, even with Brian Eno, as much as I love him and I love the work he did solo, but the ambient stuff, when when New Age music or, or what gets categorized as New Age music starts to sort of fill the space a little bit, and usually those are uh, yoga studios or massage room spaces, uh, I start to wonder the, what what is the, the validity of it? What is, you know, can anyone do it? Because I had some moment when I was getting a massage at some point, and I'm talking about legit massage, where you start to realize that that music they play during massages is categorically new age music. So what makes it different than when a genius does it, there is new age music. uh, And that is what fills spiritual spaces that are usually at spas, but generally it's not that hard to do with a synthesizer and some patience and a basic knowledge of the keyboard. So, it kind of got muddied for me. And, and also just the idea of new age, new age music. It's, it seems kind of silly somehow, or it's definitely connected to the full spectrum of loopy spirituality. But then as, you, you know, as time went on and I do a little yoga, I meditate and, I, and and whatnot, I can still appreciate it. And then I got a bunch of records from some label with a lot of these um, early new age people. There's a whole world of it, I guess, is what I'm saying. And they don't want to be categorized as jazz But how you take it in, you know, as, as art is sort of up to you and it's, you have to make an effort. So when Laraji came up as a possibility to interview, I thought, well, hell, that, that would be interesting. I mean, I'd like to know what differentiates it. I wanted to know about his past because he's not choosing to do this out of nowhere. This guy is a deeply educated and experienced musician, both compositionally and, and he did something fucking wild with his instrument had an auto harp, pulled the the, the buttons off it, uh, amplified it, ran it through a phase box. And then you have this amazing transcendent sound that has very deep um, intent on his part in terms of what it means and where it takes him and where it should take other people. So, so I was excited to talk to him. And it turns out he, he just has this history with New York that's very interesting and yeah, so that's that's how that came about. I got this box set. Dan told me that's this guy, or he's a guy, and then somehow or another, I get to the Eno record that I had for years that I'd listened to, but never knew anything about it. And then come, I don't guess it's full circle, but you know, get him in the garage. A very good uh, conversation. It was interesting. The box set segway to Infinity. It's got it's like four LPs. It contains his earliest known recordings. It's out now from Numero Group. You can go to numerogroup.com to get it. And uh, this is me talking to the very pleasant and peaceful Laraji. You got your uh, kalimba? Just, oh, just my God. Place. That's all of it. You can do it all with that. How, is that. how is that instrument tuned? It comes tuned in G major. Okay. And um, A440.
1: And what I do is I retune it by moving just a few of the reeds to accommodate whatever alternative tuning project I'm working with. So it, it can work. To a minor? Um, right now it's in a G minor.
0: Mm. What about it?
1: Whoa!
0: Yeah. Your ears. Ah. Oh. So what did you add to the G tuning? Oh.
1: The active G, G, G minor yeah. is uh, relative to B flat major. So I think right. I was working on a project with a B flat major oh. tuning, and this was a compliment.
0: I just, for the first time, tuned my guitar to open G. First time in your life? Yeah, recently. Hmm. Uh, And I took the E string off and just have an open G, and I've just uh, been trying to play uh, some slide. If the E string is off, that means a little less tension on the bottom. That's right. And it's got a nice, uh, you know, Keith Richards plays everything like that. Really? He takes the E string off? Takes the E string off, plays open G, and that's why you get that interesting kind of meaty sound on some of those Stone songs. But I think he learned it from Rye Cooter.
1: Okay, I never thought of that. That's a new take—a string off, as opposed to putting it somewhere else in the G, in the G scale, like a, making a D.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I think it might be the tension thing, yeah. and it definitely lets you hit that what you've got a little harder. All right, right. There's an idea. I'll give some energy to. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I you know I haven't really played around with the fingerings too much, but. It gives you a lot of uh, resonance. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't got to bar anything if you can figure out where to put your fingers. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. That, I play a lot of
1: guitar with finger. On top? Bar, yeah. Oh, on the bar, yeah. Totally like a uh, mountain dulcimer.
0: Oh, dulcimers.
1: Hmm. How, do you have a dulcimer? I do. Uh, there's the, the mountain dulcimer is shaped like an hourglass. Yeah, yeah, yes. I've seen those, yeah. And you can run a dowel rod, or steel slide up and down the strings. So it's got a droney aspect, a drone aspect.
0: It's interesting, though, that you took these instruments that were primarily seemingly uh, kind of Appalachian hill folk instruments mm-hmm. and turned them inside out. Yes, I call it the well-tampered with auto harp. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, the, take the <laughs> yeah. chord bars off, change the tuning, put electronics on, play with various um, implements I was not totally exposed to the auto harp to know um, how exactly it is to be played. I know it's plucked, and that's all I know. Yeah. I, so I think I'm breaking a lot of perceptual rules about. Well,
0: it sounds you know, like about, that. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly fill the space. Like I listened to, uh, I was to some older stuff, and I like I I'm relatively. I'm not new to your work, but, you know, I had the the Brian Eno-produced record forever. Mm-hmm. But ambience. I Ambience. Yes, the yeah. Ambience 3. And I had not associated because that that world of music is not something I'm that, um, you know, uh, knowledgeable about. But I always was an Eno guy. Uh-huh. But it, it turns out that uh, it seems that to me that you opened up the, almost an entire field of music— outside of what was uh, originally thought of as sort of experimental jazz, right? Um, I don't know if I was using terminology to guide
1: me at the time, sure. other than groovy, beautiful, exploration, let's see what happens if you do this, and if something happens, you go with it, and not really giving it a name, even though the word New Age, Experimental, Explorational.
0: I like those better. De- New Age... Deep listening, yeah.
1: New age is seems confrontational to many people. You say, "What is that?" It sounds kind of
0: whippy woppy. Uh. Well, I think what happened, and I kind of make this uh, observation before, was that uh, you know, there's a world of, I guess, new age music that if it's not done with with sort of passion, yes, it 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 can be pretty lazy, yes. Passion
1: and I say uh, a devotion. My place, I come from uh, schooling in theory and composition. So I like to act as a composer while I am improvising. So being conscious of
0: form. And it does design, it in it, yeah. its second nature. Mm-hmm, yes. To find the difference in, from just like massage music and, and somebody who's a true artist. Do you know? Sometimes you you get you go to a yoga practice or you go get a massage, yes, and they'll play this type of music on a loop that sits in the background. I guess right. functionally, yeah. right? And that's sort of under the umbrella of new age music, mm-hmm. but none of it sounds. I shouldn't say none, and maybe I don't know the artists who I'm talking about. But a lot of times, it just sounds like it was intended to be background music, or or just something almost like a a. Uh, uh, progressive uh, music.
1: Yes. And you might be suggesting a new age function or use of music. Yes. Uh, whether they use it in box, did box people have massage music in the yeah, background? Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, uh, maybe the advance of, you say, the planetary public being exposed to technology, spiritual technologies like yoga, tai chi, breathing, that I believe there is a large community that is familiar with Shavasana. course yeah, sure. deep The deep dive into uh, the now. And that the music yeah. to uh, function as a backdrop or as a container for, for a person in that yogic state. Whether we call it New Age function of music. You say, what is that music about? Well, it's the whole space for someone who is... Uh, in the zone, their their body is in a corpse pose, so it's not music for dancing. It's not music for sending your thoughts into your last romantic affair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not music, pop music. Yeah, music to keep you, support you in remaining undistracted.
0: Right. Yes. But that was not uh, the beginning. Like you said, you studied theory. So wait, because I know... You know, there's a there's a, a, a almost like a mythology to you, in terms of uh, how you evolved into this uh, shaman like person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but it, it started in New Jersey. Oh, that's yeah, Perthamo, New Jersey, is where I grew up,
1: had schooling, and the school system was very strong on offering music options to students there. That's
0: yeah. nice, right? It's you th- got lucky.
1: Yeah, even in the third grade something like a fife, a tonette, we were given. And in the fourth grade, we were given the opportunities to study the violin, the cornet, or the... What's that black thing? uh,
0: Clarinet, clarinet. Clarinet, yeah.
1: And the violin, something inside of me kind of jumped up and pointed, let's do that. The violin. Yeah, the violin. So I got into string music, and shortly after that, maybe within uh, half a year, my mother who observed my interest in piano obtained a piano and put it in the house an upright piano yeah so there I was with piano and violin and plus I was singing with the school and church choirs so music was my default mode or my staple are you the only musician in your family i uh, yes committed devoted this way although my uh, my mother sang around the house and sang in the choir I believe I'm the only one who gave this much energy and intention to music. And it was, I was almost going to be one who didn't give give the attention.
0: Yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? Two brothers. Yeah. Two brothers. No music, huh? No music. Mm -hmm. But
1: it wasn't until somebody mentioned how Howard University had a good music school that something in me responded. Says, hey, maybe I don't really want to be an architect or a chemical engineer. I want to go to... I want to pursue music. Those so were I, the options? Yeah, I was preparing to go to MIT and uh, to study, to be a chemical engineer or either architect. Wow, where did that? what did your uh, dad do? My dad was a tailor. Oh. Tailor, he worked for a clothing chain, a pretty groovy clothing change in New Jersey. It was yeah. called Jim Dale, and then it was called American Shops. Uh-huh. And uh, his influence... Um, gave me the appreciation for clothing styles textures of material yeah and uh looking dapper <laughs> yeah. Yeah. dapper dad yeah, yeah
0: dapper dad mm-hmm. but that was not the thing engineering and architecture well architecture seems like it would be kind of amazing
1: i really was not realized now that i was under a superficial image of what it would be like i thought you'd become an architect and you go out and design fancy buildings and yeah but then somebody says you don't do that you have to uh relate to what your client wants. <laughs> 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 so music seemed like
0: a freer creative yeah. place where I could create and uh so you were you were had an impulse of artistic freedom early on. Yes, it it was
1: important, artistic freedom, spontaneity and uh, It was early in life that I noticed that when I was really into the zone, improvisational zone, I wasn't able to hold a conversation. Somebody come up and talk to me. It seemed like I had to switch the space in which my mind was focused. Mm. And I didn't realize what that was about. Like, maybe I was on the left side and I couldn't function on
0: the right side at the same time. Uh, Totally engaged. Yes. So when you decide to uh, go to Howard... Uh, what was that program like at that time? What year are we talking? Do you think?
1: sixty-two to sixty-four. Howard uh-huh. University. And what was, what was going on there? The College of Fine Arts, School of Music. Uh, when I arrived, there was a, it was my first real deep immersion into like wall to wall dominant uh, people of color, mm. seeing people of different skin textures. Different eye colors, different bone structures, different hair textures. Seeing uh, people of color from around the world—that yeah. was eye-opening. Different, How so? different dialects. It was a time when uh, the civil rights movement was heating up. Stokely Carmichael was on the campus at that time, and I remember just seeing on the news a person that I knew on campus, seeing him on the news laying in front of a tank.
0: Yeah, I said, whoa, holy moly! Right. <laughs> It's all going on. Yes. Did you get involved? I didn't
1: get involved. I didn't feel my footing was strong enough. I was on scholarship, and um I didn't did not know as much as Stokely Carmichael knew about what your rights were. I mean, does somebody have a right to drive a tank over you?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, uh, it was it was eye opening and alerting because I did grow up. Uh, connected to the NAACP, so yeah. I was, in my youth, I was a um, sort of soft activist. Yeah. In other words, being active but not really connected to the harsh reality, the experiential reality of what was going on. In the I South. think that's
0: most people. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in general, in, when it comes to sort of activism, I think a lot of people's hearts in the right place. But when it comes to putting the rubber on to the road, yes, it can get a little. Uh, you got to acknowledge the risks. The risks and uh your inside
1: I grew up very indoctrinated in Christian Christian sensibility. So uh and passivism? Pacifism, uh kinda yes. Although there's one song in the Christian tradition called Onward Christian Soldiers. Sure. Onward as to war with the cross of Jesus yeah. marching on before. And but violence And hardcore resistance, Um, I think it was taken out of me by my father and mother, the way they administer corporal punishment. Uh, Uh, Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So the idea of being activists against authority was kind of uh, compromised by, uh, you know, mother and father up there watching.
0: Well, also, yeah, but but that's interesting because early on you realized— one of the reasons why you didn't want to be an architect was that you didn't want to uh, have to uh, answer, you, you, you know, be part of someone else's vision or requirements or or, or Yes, uh, I had misunderstood what that meant. But in the same way, you, you know, standing up to authority, you, 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 there's an essential sort of fight there, and it's a righteous fight, but but through art you can transcend all of it.
1: Yes, when you ask, you stand up to an authority, to authority, um, you think you want to know who's got your back, yeah, and how much of the authority is really responsible for what you're protesting, yeah. And then you got questions just how do you fix the situation? Have you really defined the situation, yeah? And uh, I found that diving into spirituality, there seems to be a common surfacing uh, statement of what the real problem is that is the
0: misidentification with our bodies. And but when did that when did that um, quest happen? When did you acknowledge that or realize that? Uh, it happened after
1: many years of spiritual investigation. That somewhere around nineteen eighties, oh, when I started uh, hearing this idea that uh, before you go out and do anything, mind your own business. So what is your real business? You know, you go out and fix a leak over there, and yeah. you realize that the leak is in somebody else's house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but how to know who you, what your house is, who you are. And that when you hear that in the beginning, it sounds, what do you mean? Who yeah. am I? I'm Edward Gordon. I'm Leraggi. I'm, And I, my rights have been violated. Da-dum, yeah. da-dum. But that kind of thinking just leaves out the core business that uh, we are one, we are a unified field. Yes. Something that doesn't appear to the faculties when we use the faculties to gather linear information we, right. we overstep the immediacy of the now,
0: right, and by by we are a unified field that is the frequency of life, yes,
1: humanity by, exactly, continuous present time unfolding, creation is here, yeah. Always, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's trippy to know that is always here. Yet we somehow we have the feeling we should try to process the creation that was past or creation that's going to
0: come. Right? Yeah, manage it. Mm-hmm. So when you go to Howard, uh, what's the focus? Are, are are is it what? What is the uh, the kind of um, context of the education? Are they was it classical? Was there a lot of jazz happening at that time? Well, when I went, Mm. I had to make piano
1: my major and composition my minor to catch up my piano skills. There was classical. I was immersed in classical Mm. uh, music, classical orchestral music, classical choir music, the big Bach, Mm. Beethoven, um, and all the big names. And it was yummy because it gave me a deep sense of harmonies, grand arm, um, grand harmonies, and yeah. how this immersive sound experience could uh,
0: ex- bring the listener to an exalted state. It's interesting because I, you know, I'm not that educated in classical, but I, will go. Do <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I do believe that whether you know anything or not, certain things are either going to lock in to your mind. And your your heart, or they're not. And and I found, when I go to Lincoln Center or something and see like a, an orchestra, I, I, it's undeniable. You're, you're lifted almost immediately.
1: That's not to say that I didn't grow up under the influence of uh, New Orleans sound and yeah. the Philly sound and the Motown sound. I danced a lot, partied a lot, and mimicked the music on my piano. So, there's a, a blend of everything. And I remember falling in love with hearing female choir from Hungary singing. And I said, whoa, is that beautiful. At or, college? Yes. Mm. And Negro spirituals from mm-hmm. uh, Southern colleges coming up to New York or New Jersey and giving concerts of sp- spiritual music, Negro spiritual music. Faith?
0: Hmm? Gospel?
1: It uh, Well, gospel was part of my regular church yeah. Sunday, but... You had the southern colleges would send up their choirs yeah. singing. Uh, uh, the term loosely was Negro spirituals. Yeah, that was what the term was then. So it had a very uh, heart centered heart—you go know, soliciting—kind mm-hmm. of sound. Yeah, and because uh, it, much of it would represent the way people spoke in the South. Right.
0: What are some of My those?
1: Lord, what a morning! My Lord, what a sky! My Lord, what a morning! And uh, yeah. songs that I guess were sung on the plantations, mm-hmm. or sung after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation.
0: Is that? Is that? Do you think? Do you ever think about the nature of? Songs that were, you know, created uh, in bondage as elevating. Yes. Because um, like you listen to that, even the one phrase or two phrases that you sang, the, the, the lift of it, when you think about the backdrop of its creation. Yes. Uh, requires a real power.
1: And I would imagine under any kind of a slavery, there are pockets where you get a whiff of freedom, whether it's in the commode or it's in the field where the masters aren't, or you the the ruling party allows you time to party by yourself. Yeah and then, you, then your jazz and your dance comes up and your laughter comes up and then your and your communal, your yeah. inner sacred communal energy gets a chance to
0: breathe. Yeah. So did you stay for the four years at Howard? I went for
1: four years. I would have had to go for five years to get a degree for teaching music. My intention of going to music school was to get to a place of no longer feeling like a trespasser in the field of music, and I reached that in the second year. But I floated through the second and fourth, the third and fourth year, and enjoyed the college situation, and it reinforced my musical skills. And what was the plan? The plan was to become clear enough to navigate as a composer. Mm. And uh, in the fourth year, during the four years at Howard, I dabbled in comedy improvisation. And it was so good that we were attracting the uh, suggestions. You should go to New York, the bitter end, and try out. You were in a group? I was in a comedy team. Oh, two of you? Yes. Who was the other guy? Charles Moore. He's probably somewhere in the uh, American dream, a family with children, a car, a house, maybe retired with a pension by now. And he chose the other path. I chose the road less traveled by. <laughs> so you leave Howard and you're in a comedy team. I left Howard after four years. Yeah. And I go to New York. Well, before I left, there was the trial period of thanksgiving uh, break from howard charles and i he lived in newark i lived in new jersey too yeah. we went home for the holiday with the plan to rendezvous at the bitter inn on a certain night yeah on a talent night and i got to the bitter inn he didn't show up who was who was at the bitter inn at that time um
0: Gain memories
1: who the Bill Cosby was famous for having opened and started the yeah. Bitter Inn, and uh, somebody named Weintraub, I think, owned the Bitter Inn at the time, yeah. But uh, I don't remember who else, but you had uh, quite a few comedians at that time,
0: sure, yeah. I think uh, Woody Allen was there, yeah. and uh, I don't know, maybe uh, I feel like Martin the, Braverman, yeah. You know, oh, Braverman, yeah. You, you know, Martin, yeah. Well, I know the name, Yep, yeah. and uh.
1: So I got there, did my act, I converted my act from a duo to a single, and it went over pretty good enough to get encouraged to move to New York. And do comedy. So, yeah. So the next, uh, when I returned to Howard after the Thanksgiving break, I uh, I see Charles. I said, Charles, uh, what happened, my man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he explained that uh, when he went home, just like I, I went home, his mother intercepted him and changed his... Uh, his enthusiasm. His trajectory. Yeah, it you're going to use your college education to do what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. So I went on, and uh, he's a funny person. Well, he knew how to be himself in a way that
0: allowed other people to laugh out loud. Now, did you, did you have—were you a fan of comedy at that time? I was. I had my favorite
1: comedians. I grew up television comedy, Red Skelton, Red Buttons— uh, Steve Allen, yeah, Steve Allen was crazy. His, yeah. his group of Louis Nye and yeah, uh, yes, uh, Jonathan Winters, oh, the best. I, I I am still a connoisseur of good laughter. And yes, I, and I'm am amazed at how many more comedians and comedians I'm
0: getting to know through way of Pandora. Yeah, on, on. sure. Yeah. But at that time, uh, how about some of the uh, the uh, black comics in the early '60s?
1: That was uh, um, Dick Gregory.
0: Yeah. Yes. He, Jack- uh, Godfrey
1: Cambridge. Godfrey Cambridge. And uh, Slappy White. Uh-huh. Phil- Flip Wilson was in there.
0: Flip Wilson. Yeah.
1: I think Richard Pryor came a little later.
0: Yeah, mid-'60s probably.
1: Yeah, he opened up the uh, envelope pretty big. They were impressive. This, is, If he can do that, I want to see if I can do that. Make some money. Then the plan, as you asked, was to get enough money to set up an apartment, I visualize it, with a large red carpet, and a stunning grand piano, and I would get into just writing
0: and composing. So you looked at comedy as sort of a side hustle to yes. get you where you needed to go? Yeah. Now, were you, were you touring at all, or were you just doing the city? I
1: did some touring with the, something called the Job Corps Camps. Mm-hmm. There was an agency who set up three artists to go out on Job Corps Camps. It had to be interracial, intergender. So I went as MC and comedian, What was your
0: act? Do you remember your act?
1: Uh, I did one-liners, and I would say at that time, I was doing comedy that was sort of self-deprecating. Yeah, It was...
0: uh, It was all your original stuff? It
1: was all my original stuff. It was things like I portrayed myself as someone who was more attracted to ugly women than beautiful women, Mm. and that uh, my adventures with ugly women... Was
0: uh, (laughs) that was was your angle?
1: (laughs) That was my angle, and it worked. But at a time, it was starting to overlap with my investigation into comedy. I mean, uh, metaphysics and the laws of consciousness. And I began thinking, "Hey, if I keep doing this kind of material, sooner or later, I'm going to attract a whole herd of ugly women into my life." Mm. So, and I I said, "Do I want that?" I said, "No, I don't want to create that situation." And so I became mindful of speech and thinking as a result of the metaphysical teachings. Oh. I and mean, what you think and what you feel and what you uh, image really impact us more than I was aware of. Really? Mm-hmm. So, like, exp- explain that to me in-, in terms of manifesting. Yes, you set up the vibration of the uh, the the way you want creation to show up in your life, moment to moment. It's like you send an you sign up on the menu. This is what I want for the next twenty four hours or twenty four days. Yeah, I want. I want to be. I want to be fucking pissed off. So if I use that language, that's what I'm asking for. Sure. If I'm fucking pissed off, the universe. Is, oh, he, fucking pissed off is how he identifies himself. We'll make sure we enforce that for him.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and surround him with fucking pissed off people. Yeah. Uh huh. Interesting, and that's the same with music.
1: Yes, and so in music through uh, eventually i evolved to understanding that what i wanted to do with music is relax the nervous system relax the listener uplift the spirit
0: were you doing like along with the comedy were you were you gigging were you doing stuff it was it's interesting as a musician and and uh, 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 an inspired one that you chose comedy but you were composing at home or you were also playing uh, in bands or what
1: I was composing, uh, literally composing onto paper, writing songs and sending it off to the Library of Congress. I was playing Fender Rhodes piano for a jazz rock group oh, that's called nice. Winds of Change. Oh. and so we were gigging in gigging in Brooklyn and in New York, and for schools, uh-huh. school uh, public school systems. What kind of tunes? They were uh, jazzy, kind of jazzy, and there was a spoken word element to it. So it was. Jazz, oh. before the rap. It was sort of jazz rock rap. So this is the mid-60s? This was the mid-70s. Oh, okay. 70s, 60s, I had moved to New York at 66. Oh. And uh, established myself with the acting uh, agency, Ernestine McClendon in New York, who handled people of color. Did you get roles? I got roles. She got me roles in uh, television commercials, in off Broadway. Oh, yeah. and uh, So you did some stage work as well? I did some stage work. I remember one of my favorite commercials was for all detergent, where I would stand in this empty container and yeah. rotate as if I was the agitator yeah. with a stain on my shirt, <laughs> and the water would fill up while I was on screen. And doing that, I wrecked my driver's license because it was in my pocket at the time. Yeah, But uh, that was the kind of things I was doing. And essentially... At Putney Swope. Putney Swope.
0: That's right. You played the product tester.
1: Yes, and that's very interesting, Mark. That it took me a while to connect the dots. That in that movie, I'm playing a chemical engineer, and I didn't make the connection that here, I was almost going to go to MIT to be a chemical engineer, and I shifted the last moment. So here's my vicarious uh, yeah fulfillment. You closed the circle. Yeah, with a white robe on, handling in a.
0: Now, what, what was Femical. your sense of that? Because uh, that film was sort of a game-changing moment in, in, in independent and art cinema. It had a profound impact on people I know, uh, you know, primarily the films of, of Louis C.K. Yes. Because I was actually with him the day mm-hmm. he bought it in a bargain bin at uh, Blockbuster, one of those okay. places. But I remember we were walking around. It was in a bargain bin. And he bought it and watched it, and it changed his entire perception of what could be done on film.
1: Yes, it did. It changed. Game changer for me because when I saw the film, I'd had no idea what it was going to be until I saw the final. And I it started me thinking this, what am I going to do about my role in the mass media? Because am I going to manage it more mindfully? Do yeah. I care? Is the money going to be the big thing? And so I can get a piano or... And what helped me to get deeper into that concern was experiencing uh, a young poet of color who was reading a poetry at a church one Sunday in which he, dun dun and the niggers who did Putney Swope should be offed. Da-dun da-dun, 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 and the niggers who did Putney Swope should be offed. Off means annihilated. I get it. And I was in the audience. He didn't know I was in the audience. And I said... Hmm. Just what kind of responsibility do I want to take? Yeah. What are you manifesting? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And I said, well, where do I start? Yeah. And what gave me a clue was Shirley McLean at the time was doing things in spirituality. Already? Huh. Yeah. And I said maybe that's what I should check out meditation to see if meditation is an activity that would allow me to sense
0: my deeper heart's direction. Now. What so, so Putney Swope was divisive within the African American community or what? Uh, it appeared to be with that one person, mm-hmm. but
1: when I saw other people who recognized me, they praised the film, right? So there was kind of a mix. Other people thought it was funny and well, welcome forward, it, it, yeah. is a new step, and some thought that it did not. It was another maybe Amos and Andy that sure didn't portray. Black
0: Potential in the Highest Light. Oh, I see. I, so the, the satire fell short in its uh, representation. It could say that.
1: Hmm. Maybe it was walled the best it could do at that time. Hmm. And maybe if it did much better, it wouldn't have gotten uh, as much circulation.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> and maybe if it was you know, conceived and created by a black director, it would have been different. Yes. What was it like? Do you remember Robert Downey Sr.? Yes, I remember
1: he was pretty flowing. Yeah. We, my parts were filmed at night in Wall Street. They obviously had rented empty Wall Street buildings. Yeah. And so I just remember him, what, at the interview audition, I went to interview for one role, and he said, you would be better for that role. And when we finally shot the uh, film on two nights, uh, it was very... Um, Improvisational. It oh. left a lot to be improv improvised. Oh, that's cool. Yep. But I didn't see any of the parts or even felt that there were parts about the use of marijuana or strong sexual images. Yeah. Or I didn't know any of that was in the film. Okay. You didn't get a script? No, I just got my two pages. Oh. Yes. I thought maybe it was a Greek tragedy. Putney yeah. Swope, <laughs> oh, what is that? Yeah. And so there's a question Do you dare do that again? Do you jump on board? a project when you don't know it's in game.
0: So what what was it after you uh, got hip to Shirley McLean? where'd you start with your uh, journey into metaphysics spirituality?
1: I just mumbled around fumbled around till I found something that seemed to address what I was looking for and I went to Sri Chinmoy uh, Osho um It wasn't until I got my hands on this book by a Western writer, Richard Hittleman, Mm. a book on Bantam Press. It was called Book of Meditation and Yoga. Yeah. That book demystified it for me. Up till then, I thought meditation and spirituality was monopolized by the East. (laughs) So this was a a book uh, uh, explaining it? It gave me... A point of departure, what to experiment with, what, okay. to, what an assignments. Yes. And it helped me to liberate from the term of transcendental meditation as being a, a copyrighted term. Right. But the generic meaning, transcendental, to go beyond. Yes. And go beyond the thinking mind or the thinking function of mind to see through the mind that isn't clouded with linear thought. Right. And so when I learned how to be still, sit still, Breathe and focus for twenty one minutes. Another version of the universe would come up into awareness, and I was always impressed by that. Hmm. That the, the the way to the the bigger and the better is really within the moment.
0: Yeah. Now, now, were you, now musically were you hip to what some people were kind of doing at that time around that, like uh, Sun Ra or anybody? I was aware,
1: just vaguely aware of Sun Ra. I couldn't really catch up to him until I moved to New York. Yeah. And, and uh, I was aware of uh, uh, John Coltrane. Sure. The energy of listening seemed to represent uh, an energy, energy consciousness, music of energy. Yeah, yeah. And I became more aware of music and sound as energy made audible. <laughs> Same with
0: with Monk too, right? Yes. And, yeah. Yes, he did. But the, the deep dish
1: uh, alternative, new age, kind of crystallized when I heard a music by Stephen Halpern and Yassos, and uh, I was living in Park Slope at the time, and, yeah. uh, and I was uh, living in a loft and working in a coffee house, the Quarian Coffee House, and one morning, on radio, there was this christening for listening. And I just listening, I said, wow, look where this music is going. Look where it is not going. Look what it's holding space for. Look what it's not holding space for. And christening for listening, which is part of Spectrum Suite. So I would say that Stephen Halpern and Yassos showed me another opening mm.
0: and uh, validated my already unfolding exploration into. Did you, do, did you look into, did any of that uh, sitar stuff resonate with you at the time? The Sitar, yeah uh Ravi Shankar's music, especially with
1: music Ravi Shankar and friends mm. um opened me up that to the uh in you know, the joy, yeah, the kind of sensual joy. I also was exposed to Sun Ra while living in Park Slope. His music did like a rotor rooter job on my over westernized
0: s- sense of music, s- yes, yeah, yeah. Um, because, like, with the sitar, because even when you play the way you play with uh, with mallets of different kinds and rhythms of different kinds, there, there is sort of, you know, I know that uh, ragas have a structure, but there, in some points in your music, there is sort of a, a rolling sense of of movement. Yes, I do move around,
1: and sometimes I find myself getting too caught up in maybe a classical sensitivity about what I'm doing. And so I th- sort of let the good times roll and let some jazz influence come in.
0: So when do you uh, lose the guitar or the uh, piano? When do you move into, how does the, the transition into what became your thing happen?
1: Living in Park Slope in the late 70s, I was playing music for a rock, jazz rock, group. Yeah. Uh, Fender Rose piano. I also had an electric or uh, guitar yeah. that I would play on my own. And one day I needed money, more money. I went to a pawn shop to pawn the guitar. While I'm going into the pawn shop, I'm noticing the auto harp in the window. Hmm. I get into the pawn shop. I offer the the manager this Martin six-string guitar in a fiberglass case, well worth about $175. He offered me $25. And uh, I said, whoa, I can't handle that. And just then... I'm hearing or I'm sensing, and I'm translating a real direct loving suggestion don't take money, swap it for the instrument in the window. (laughs) And uh, I'm saying, What? (laughs) The voice was so clear, yet there was a depth of compassion and nurturing affection that I just could not ignore. And I'm wondering, How is this happening? And I decided to follow this rabbit hole by swapping it Mm. for the auto harp, not knowing it where it's going to take me. And it's like the foundation of my uh, new music life. Yeah. So I left there with $5. I made a little deal, $5 and the auto harp. And I began exploring open tunings, my favorite guitar open tunings. Eventually taking the chord bars off, electrifying it, and... Using the Stanislavski or the acting technique, it was what if. You just, you go into a store. What if I played the instrument with that? Or yeah. what if I electric? What if I put it through that effect? So I explored a lot of what ifs. And at that time, the available effects were somewhere between $95 and $125. This is and the early
0: 80s? Early 80s, yes. So we're dealing with flangers, phase shifters, distortions. Right, and...
1: um Phasers, right. And loopers didn't come until much later.
0: Right. Well, they were complicated. They right? yeah. had tape and everything. Mm-hmm. How about Echo?
1: Echo was difficult. There was the Echo Plex. Yeah. I would get to use it if I was at somebody's studio. Yeah. And uh, the Be- phase shifter was my main thing because it could keep a, an inner sound mo- motion going, which seemed to represent timeless current.
0: Right so what, when once you get the auto harbor, is that when you hit the streets?
1: Yes, the sidewalks of Park Slope and uh, Manhattan uh, the plan there was since I had contacted a very convincing level of meditative place in myself yeah, was to explore it was easy to operate the electric zither while in that state in cross legged position yeah. And I was curious to see how much of this inner nonverbal abstract space would get transmitted through performing this rather freeform sound bath. And I was impressed with how people would listen and absorb the sound and how it would draw them out of the linear mind, the world mind.
0: Right, it must have been amazing, like on the
1: street, because it kind of stops time, right? Stops time, stops uh, rush hour traffic. Yeah, Mm yeah. And it was a good learning model of how to perform with
0: in an environment that was busy, huh? And how do you come upon your name from from the original, uh, you know, Edward Lowry, Larry Gordon, Edward Larry Gordon, Larry Gordon, Larry G. Lara G. Ah.
1: Eventually, some um, friends at a bookstore, Tree of Life in Harlem, in the late nineteen seventies. Yeah, after a few. Moments of my offering music for psychic fairs at this bookstore. Yeah, my uh, Kanya brother Kanya operated the Tree of Life in Harlem. Yeah, and so I would sit up front and just do this music that was supportive of psychic function and meditation. One day, these two brothers came to me and says, "We've been listening to your music, and it takes us to a place far unlike." Edward Gordon. <laughs> well, we come up with a suggestion of a name for you. And I thought, oh, mm. you know, if they suggest a name to me and I don't resonate with it, this could be awkward. I said, let's meet in Central Park tomorrow and you can reveal the name to me. Yeah. What they didn't know that I was really looking for a name and that I felt intuitively it would be a name with three syllables and it would have something to do with the sun because by that time I had a really deep in relationship with the sun. Huh. We meet in Central Park the next day, maybe uh, Bethesda Fountain. They reveal the name to me and I am like, wow. It was a name that evolved softly from Larry Gordon yeah. into Lara G., and the Ra is the Egyptian sun god. Yes, Yo, mm. and uh, the divinity of the sun coming down into humanity and uplifting humanity. That's sort of the loose translation of the name La Raji. G is usually a spontaneously supplied name, part of the name that you applied in affection for someone. Mm. So there was La Raji, and I was wow. And I did a little altering so that the name would have a numerological value of seven. Why that? Because I considered seven to be a a level of meditation and calm.
0: Okay. And also... That's why
1: you added an A? I added an A without knowing that that A was correct in the Egyptian spelling of Ra, Uh R-A-A. So we have three A's in uppercase, which... Uh, would uh, expose three yeah. equilateral triangles, which I, at that time, I sensed that NASA was sending spacecraft, yeah. with would have a symbol of a triangle on it to suggest intelligent life huh. somewhere oh, or whatever. Was that
0: a theory or is that a fact?
1: Uh, the fact that NASA was using the triangle as uh, a universally interpretable. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. For peace, goodwill. So I did that. And so there I was, the name La Raji. I I was a little concerned that if I changed my name now, will it start a streak of wanting to change it later? Well, it didn't.
0: Yeah. But you added some stuff. The
1: A, yeah. Yeah. And uh, my biological family did not find it comfortable to get on board with the name. With La Raji? uh, Now and then lovingly they politely will vibrate the name and or call me Larry.
0: And, and you're okay, right. Yes. Yeah.
1: One of the big things to watch out for is any sense of attachment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that it leads to confrontation? Uh, attachment would mean um, that you still got some work to do, that you're still identifying oh. with, with the physical dimension as your main business. Uh, I believe my main business
0: is this eternal current. Yeah. So once you start playing the eternal current or channeling it, (laughs) (laughs) once you start surfing the eternal current with your music, Mm -hmm. uh, are you beginning to build a following for it fairly quickly? Yes. And uh,
1: for instance, in Japan, a following since the release of Day of Radiance, the Brian Eno produced album the following developed there maybe 6 years before i even went to
0: japan from that record because i like, you know in the new box set which is stunning and interesting mm-hmm. one of the discs is the first record very which, first celestial vibration yes which did not get the type of exposure that brian's record would have gotten correct and it's sort of interesting to listen to the first record, nineteen seventy eight, Celestial Vibration, which I listen to today, and to sort of see how you, you, you know, how you evolved.
1: Yes, uh, I am quite uh, impressed too when I listened to it. Yeah. Wow, I was doing that then. Right. What? Why did I stop doing that? And then. Now I'll pick up the evolution of that uh, idea. Yeah. Being free, spontaneous, and experimenting and trusting, experimenting in the flow in order to keep myself
0: freed up. Well, I think that's the real, the gift of it is that, you know, you do get into a state where, you know, your sense of, of timing and when to do whatever you're going to do in that moment of expression uh, really fits in with the foundation that you build yes. improvisationally. Mm-hmm. And that just has to come with time, right? It does. And I also realize
1: that it keeps unfolding. Yeah. New stuff. Th- this is like meditation. Um, at the beginning, you think meditation is dull, boring, the end of life as yeah. we know it. But it keeps opening into these more serene layers. And the big part of meditation is that. The self, as I know it, undergoes a transformation. Yeah. So it isn't the old self thinking it's going to be boring. The newer self is understanding, hey, this is no way
0: boring. This is freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is what it sounds like. <laughs> and it, and also, the thing that struck me today when I was listening is that uh, uh, there's no reason to end. Yes, that uh, <laughs> very
1: good point, that the music that... Uh, that I've recorded yeah. when someone asks, can they edit it? And uh, am I concerned about how it's edited? I'm not. Yeah. Cause you can end it anywhere. And you can <laughs> start it anywhere. Uh, sometimes I call it vertical music. It's yeah. all about every moment is, is the whole moment.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, cause I was wondering, it's like, cause there's no sense because it's improvisational where you're, you're moving towards a conclusion. Yes. That's classical. Is it? Uh, well, classical tends to have a resting
1: tone, I call it, oh, okay. or an intro, or an interlude. and But as a composer, we have artistic freedom to let the feeling
0: flow as I'm feeling it. Do you still consider it composition when you are in a flow or an improvisation? I tend to allow elements,
1: simple form is ABA, open up with a theme, whether it's rhythmical oh, or... Yeah and then you flow, and then you return the theme again so that the listener is saying, oh, there's
0: a familiar point. Is that a jazz thing, or is that a classical thing?
1: Uh, It seems to happen in both. Yeah, I see in jazz, yeah. Yeah. The the theme and improvisation, it could be, or theme and
0: variation. Right, right. And, all right, so getting back to uh, Ambient 3, Day of Radiance, so I know there's a story behind it, you know, because Eno's an interesting guy, and he found... He, it was a coincidence, or I don't know that you believe in coincidence that you know he approached you. Well, here's the law of manifestation, yeah. Before before
1: Brian Ano and I met up, yeah, I was doing affirmations for the right producer, uh huh. You know, I didn't know who the right producer would be, yeah. Use the term right in your affirmation so that the universal intelligence takes care of the details, yes. So there I am in my favorite performance spot in Washington Square Park, the northeast corner. There was a cobblestone circle and around which were seats, benches, and people could sit. And I sat in the center and radiated this music. On one particular warm, maybe early fall night, I had finished playing for a few hours and this couple comes over to me, very polite and kind, and says, "Uh, have you ever heard of Frippin' uh, I didn't know what they were saying. Frippin' Eno? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I Is that one word? <laughs> <laughs> and they suggested if you have your time, you might want to check out their music. And I sort of made a mental note. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so that was that evening. Oh, they took me home for dinner. That right. And Those, then they that, talked that couple? About, yeah, the couple. And yeah. Further reiterated, they lived in the village. So a month later, I'm in the same place. Well, all through the next month, I'm there. But on a month later, I'm at the same situation, finishing up, counting my change, and there's this piece of paper in my zither case. It looked like it had been ripped from a very expensive book. Yeah. And it was written meticulously. Dear sir, please excuse this rather impromptu message. I was wondering if you would be open to discussing working on a music project, signed Brian Eno. And I'm saying, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I called him either that night or the next morning, and we agreed I'd come over and brought some, I think, orange juice. And we sat down. He was living on 8th Avenue in a penthouse. Uh-huh. Right across from the art school. Yeah. And he had set up in his living space... This across from like FIT or uh, it was more the Art Students League, I think on 8th Avenue. Oh, okay, 8th All Street. Right.
0: yeah. And what he set up a studio, uh, three speakers. Yeah, normally you would see two.
1: And he was trying to explain to me what the third speaker was about taking information from both sides and including something that's getting missed by the ears. I didn't quite grasp it, but it what I did grasp is that here was an advanced thinker, yeah. <laughs> And Who was locked into what you were doing. Yes. And he brought up the subject of ambient. And he could see that I had not developed uh, the ability to use the word ambient in my music. But I did assure him if we went into a studio, something interesting could happen. And we both agreed. Yeah. And we went into a studio in Soho within maybe a week and recorded the beginning of Day of Radiance, Ambient 3.
0: Yeah. And it, what was it like working with him as a producer?
1: It was easy, fast, intuitive. He left a lot of space, and he showed me some very quick and new thinkings about my instrument. Like basically, depending more on the uh, uh, on high end microphones than my uh, pickup. Mm. And also uh, dampening the strings with uh, duct tape. (laughs) Oh, yeah? And also double-tracking the zither. My first time of double-tracking the zither on a high-quality recording situation. Oh, so it
0: must have been mind-blowing.
1: You know, there's something that rises up inside of me to the situation. You know, I can be in a mind-blowing situation, but then another part says, here we are. We're the ones for the job. This is our time. <laughs> this is what we've got to do. <laughs> try to stay, try to keep a little of that engaged. Yes, you realize yeah. oh, this is what you've been prepared to do here and now, do it. And that sort of set the tone. Yes. They, um, the studio turned out to be good for the excited, ecstatic, hammered work. When we listened to the meditative track, which who was not aware of that I could do the soft meditative we listened back and realized that st- mechanical sounds from some other part of the studio, that building in Soho, yeah. was leaking onto the s- soft recording. Six months later, we recorded another meditative side, which turned out to be Meditation 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. And then it was released through EG Records. Yeah, that was his label, right? That was uh, not his label, but oh, that's the label that was working with him. Okay. And it was funny because people would see EG and they said, is that your label, Edward Gordon? No.
0: Ah. <laughs> well, those, uh, some of those, ambience, I, I think he did one with, uh, what was it, John Hassel and... Uh, uh, yeah, they
1: they might have come out on EG at the time because... I can't remember,
0: was, but there was a, a world of music. Uh, yeah, that Harold Budd. Harold Budd, yeah, yes. yeah. You know that guy? Yes, we uh, did concerts together and a tour opal uh-huh in Europe. And but that like that record just, you know, kind of in terms of recording just got you going. I mean, you recorded like one or two records a year.
1: Yes. And uh no complaint about that. Put me on on the bigger map. And what comes along with that is that um, I'm just slowly getting to realize Brian's credentials. I just know that he was part of Roxy and Yeah, yeah. And later found out that he basically studied in an art school. So his approach to music is very art sensitive. Sure. But I would be at parties or gatherings somewhere in the world. Mm. And people would walk up to me and start talking. And I don't, don't quite know who they are or yeah. what their intention is. And somewhere in the middle of a the conversation, they'll reach into their pocket and pull out a cassette. Yeah. Can you get this to Eno?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it happened more than 3 or 4 times enough for me to inquire. I said, "Brian, uh, these people are trying to yeah. uh, I don't want to encroach upon your private time. What should I do about this?" And he said, "Well, there's a place they can send the material to yeah. and uh, listen to it." Oh. And so I got
0: that great Did you maintain a, a relationship with him?
1: Yes, it's a soft spoken relationship. Understanding is quite busy. We
0: um, haven't done any major recording together. We visit yeah. each other, but you've done plenty of recording. Yes, uh, it's kind of uh, amazing. Like uh, there, and you play with other people, and then you integrated other instruments. When did you start using this one,
1: Kalimba? Somewhere in the mid to eight, mid to eight 80s. Yeah, I've always. Imp- Love the instrument, yeah. but it wasn't until someone placed one in my hands and I could feel it. I got initiated into it and went out and s- obtained my own. Yeah. It, of course, each person, I used to get quite a few of them from uh, uh, this person, uh, Hugh Tracy. I made contact with him, and he allowed me to get them very inexpensively. And I gave him his gifts, and I would observe how each one person would have their own approach to it. One person would keep it next to his seat when he was driving and yeah. doing stoplight or whatever, play it. Other people had their approaches. So it was very different from the Earth, Wind & Fire, Maurice White. Yeah. Kind of fast. I thought fast glimmer was the only way to do it. Until I discovered you can get very gentle. Yeah. It's beautiful walking through a wooded area alone with this, or with a non-talkative person with this. (laughs) Well, it's almost immediately meditational, right? Yes, and uh, the story is that this is used very much in ancestral celebrations and family celebrations in Africa. Yeah, it's uh, portable and it's uh, tunable. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's charming.
0: So. Now, there's a bit of a story behind this new box set from Numero, which uh, you know got me kind of reacquainted with you. And it sounds like a very interesting story that you don't really recall <laughs> the sessions. Yes. Okay, uh,
1: segue to infinity. Now, there were two different major recording situations going on in the space of two or three years. Yeah, One was at the uh, ZBS studios recording Celestial Vibration, and then the th- relaxation company wanted to distribute it, and it said, why don't we record another album or do more of that? And so a studio somewhere in Long Island, Huntington, yeah. I remember going into the studio and recording more tracks sort of... Um, as a possible second album. Yeah. And there were outtakes from the first and outtakes from the second, and I don't remember which ones were which. And I do recall the company Folded, Relaxation Folded. Yeah. They sent me some records that they weren't selling anymore. Yeah. But I don't remember getting the masters. Right. Yet, Douglas comes up to me and says, this student in New Jersey has found your master's at an auction. <laughs> and it's boxed into this package that has your home address on it. Yeah. And I'm scratching my head and saying, what? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so it's a good what. So I let it go without needing to really get investigatory about it. It seemed like it was going in the right direction for all the good reasons. They
0: weren't, But they weren't... Uh, were they tapes or acetates?
1: They or? were... Um, the original acetates. The plates. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That uh, included the voice of the engineer on them. Interesting. Yes. And Douglas says, we should release this. And I'm saying,
0: really? Yeah. <laughs> and and this was recently? This was, what, three years ago? That's crazy. Yeah. Some kid, some record nerd. Yeah, a college student,
1: very articulate. I met him. Yeah. And, uh. Uh, he said he spent his entire bank account one hundred and twenty six dollars on it, <laughs> and I thought, "Wow,
0: what a devotion!" Now, so that's how this this and it's four or five. I mean, the four in which includes the, the original
1: celestial vibration. So there is three new uh, as as of then unheard of, Laraji releases. And, now, yeah, given that every time I am in the studio. I am uh, uh, accessing in the divine current, so if I listen back to any of my
0: music, I can revisit the current through that music you think you get right in it, yeah, yeah now when you so now, how old are you now? The body is eighty years is that that's good for that's you a
1: lot of toothpaste,
0: yeah <laughs> 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 and and now as an eighty-year-old artist, what you do these performances, and, and it seems that you have sort of a, a, a position as somewhat of a a, a, a spiritual um, not not leader but uh, guide, a guide, a model. Yeah. Yes. So and, you've manifest you've manifested a a, a a following and a practice.
1: Yes, the following shows up in In the sense of somebody will come to me and says, "Your music inspired me to get into this, and I'm doing computer music or I'm exploring the auto harp or open tunings. yeah, or I'm exploring getting deeper into my spiritual core and bringing that into my art form mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and what is what is the uh what did I read about laughter what is the the laughter laughter approach? is the big yum it's uh it's
1: it's a continuation of something I've always liked doing getting people into the laughter zone, even as a child, yeah." and doing stand-up comedy in New York, Greenwich Village. Yeah. Then eventually getting hold of a Osho, Rajneesh book, Orange Book of Meditations. Uh, if you don't know who Osho is or was, is a very stimulating, provocative, uh, spiritual model uh-huh. for evolving sincere seekers beyond any stuck entanglements. So that book contain many pages of, suggested meditations. Yeah. One of them was laughter meditation. Yeah. And I thought up till then, wow, I didn't know meditation and laughter belonged in the same phrase. Huh. And it simply was, upon awakening in the morning, keep your eyes closed, stretch your arms and your legs, check in with your breathing, and then laugh for 15 minutes. That's all. Just laugh. Just reach for your laughter however best you can do it. I did that for seven days. I was impressed where it goes. Uh, so, and
0: you're not, but because it's meditation, you're not, you know, picturing funny things. You're just tapping to laughter as an as a energy output? Yes. And that was difficult at first, until
1: after five minutes I found out how to ignite because what starts coming up is a familiarity, body language. Yeah. How we natural, each of us laughs, what we do with our hands when we're in laughter, our facial our breath patterning, uh-huh. and when I started noticing that, it would like snowball the laughter into authentic episodes, and uh, it would get into like an infectious, self infectious laughter. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was impressed that I could get there, self ignite myself into laughter without thinking of anything funny. Yeah, and uh, matter of fact, I was. I used to think, hey, this is a wonderful exercise for comedy writers or comedians. So it helps to sharpen our radar, intuitive radar, about what we're trying to get to happen in someone else. Mm. Interesting, but but usually it's an
0: involuntary reaction.
1: Yes, it's usually laughter. Natural laughter is usually in a social situation. Yeah, it surprise comes, runs yeah. its course and yeah. then leaves, and in that time you don't really have the opportunity. To dive back into the deeper health benefits of laughter. Right. Like how it massages the thymus in the chest mm. seat of immune system, how yeah, it can yeah. be used to massage the internal organs. We know what a belly laugh is, but during the laughter play shops that I and my partner conduct, we help to promote a, a conscious attitude when laughter breaks out to try to include the internal organs. <laughs> or to let the laughter vibrate the brain. And get the pituitary and the pineal gland and all the endorphins and the hormones going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> So we sweep the endocrine system, the body. Yeah, the, the laughter has been called the shortest distance between two people, and I'm inclined to believe it's the shortest distance between me and myself. You know, that's great. Overthinking keeps us from being in sync with ourselves, and so laughter is a way of transcending the thinking mind, even if for a while.
0: Yeah, so between the music and the laughter, yabba dabba do <laughs> <laughs> It's nice talking to you, man. Thank you. There you go. He brought an instrument. Okay, so you can get that box set uh, segue to infinity at numerogroup.com. Hang out for a minute, people. So we've got some more movie talk this week on The Full Marin, and this time it's all about Martin Scorsese. I love The Wolf of Wall Street. I I, love it. I think it's one of his best movies. And that guy, totally morally compromised, but totally excited. But well, maybe He's maybe the worst guy that Scorsese has depicted. Like the the most irredeemable worst person. Yeah. And the whole movie is about showing at every step of the way, he's lying that this thing that happened is not true. This thing that happened didn't, it didn't turn out well. It's like every step he fucked up and it gets you all the way to the end where people are still paying their hard earned cash to listen to him because they think he's such an expert and will make them all rich. It's like Trump. There you go. And then that, that movie was 2013, three years yeah. before Donald Trump becomes the president. The maleness of that movie, there is definitely throughout almost every one of it. He's exploring the male psyche with. Oh, and like this question. is this was a this was a movie about toxic masculinity before people were even talking about that. But the but but what was known as the fun kind of toxic masculinity. <laughs> Like, they, the every shot, as the movie goes on, of that trading floor, yeah. they, they, at some point, there are guys doing acrobatics. Yeah, it's like a backflip, like standing yeah. backflip. It's <laughs> just testosterone-driven <laughs> shit show. To get the latest bonus episode, plus every episode of WTF ad-free, go to the link in the episode description to sign up for the full Marin or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Next week, we have Chef Jose Andres on Monday and Fisher Stevens on Thursday. Dig it. Here's some sloppy slide guitar.